Well, good morning, Mars Hill. So good to see you all. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light. Well, before we begin um, in our passage today in Habakkuk, we'll take a moment to reflect on the fact that this is Memorial Day weekend, a time where we as a nation remember those who have fallen in the line of military service and duty to our country, and something that we as Christians gathering together are especially thankful for, the fact that we get to gather together publicly to fellowship, to hear the gospel preached and to worship together, which is a privilege that not everybody in the world has today. And that privilege was purchased in part by uh, the blood of men and women who have served our nation. So let's take a few moments to remember their sacrifice, and then we'll begin. Well, if you have your copy of Scripture, you can open up to Habakkuk verses, or sorry, chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. If I just said 5 through 11 verses, you'd have to guess whether that was chapter 1, 2, or 3. <laughs> chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. And last week, we were introduced to this prophet Habakkuk, or Habakkuk. And we noticed, I think, right away that this is kind of a different type of prophet than we're used to. When we read prophets like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, essentially what's happening is God is communicating through that chosen person. And so there's a lot of thus saith the Lord. But with Habakkuk, it's different. What we're seeing develop is something of a dialogue that Habakkuk is speaking on behalf of Judea. He's speaking on behalf of the Hebrews or God's people. And God is responding. Well, I should say Habakkuk is speaking on behalf of some of the people because apparently not everything is going well in the land at this time. They are being ruled over by an immoral king and that kind of immorality and injustice is spreading like a cancer through God's people. The vices that leaders do in moderation, we could say, typically are done in excess by their followers. And so what Habakkuk is seeing right now is because of immoral or ungodly leadership, the entire people of God have been affected negatively. And so the nation is descending into chaos, into immorality, into violence, into dissension. And it appeared to Habakkuk and those who affirm with him that things are not right, it appeared to them like evil was winning, like evil was beginning not only to subvert the people, but was overtaking righteousness and truth and peace. There's destruction and violence, he says. The law is paralyzed. The justice never goes forth. In other words, what we're seeing Habakkuk wrestle with is the problem of evil. If God is who he says he is, that being he's all good and he's all powerful, then why is it that evil is persisting, especially among God's own people? So Habakkuk's complaint is not against God and his inactivity. 
Habakkuk's complaint is against the activity of his own people. And the activity of his own people is causing suffering. Justice is perverted. Violence is occurring. Immorality is causing suffering. And doubtless, this is something that uh, we struggle with too. Like how does, how do we combine our belief and hope in God as scripture has described him as being good and omnipotent, which is a fancy word meaning all powerful or all sovereign. How do we square that God away with the reality of living, living in an immoral and a broken and a fallen world filled with suffering? Like maybe you've been exactly where Habakkuk was when he was crying out in prayer concerning suffering. How long, O Lord, shall I cry for help and you will not hear? He's crying out, help, I'm suffering. And there's different ways that we suffer. There's different sins and sources of sin that cause us to suffering. Perhaps you've suffered as a consequence of your own sin. And so you cry out to God, help, my sin has caused me to suffer. I repent from it. I need your help. I know I am forgiven. I know you're gracious, but you feel so distant from me. And so in this lament, in this prayer of suffering, we might say with the psalmist in 9013, return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Or maybe it's our sin collectively that's caused us to suffer. We repent, God. We need you. We knew what we were doing displeased you or was not right. We didn't care then, but we do now. And we repent, but we're racked by guilt. And so with another psalmist, we might say, oh, Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? Well, maybe it's their sin, them, the others, that's causing us to suffer. And so we say, Lord, please get them to stop. Bring them to repentance. Bring justice. I've been wronged. My abuser, my oppressor, the one who has sinned against me is guiltless. They're indifferent to my pain. Where's the justice at, God? How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? Or maybe it's just the general fallen condition of the world that causes suffering. Cancer, storms, conflict. How much longer, God, are you going to allow these things to be in the world? Return, O oh Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Again, Psalm 90, 13. Have you ever prayed one of these prayers before? If you have, you're in the company of Habakkuk, and you're in the company of those who affirm what Habakkuk is praying to God. How long, O oh Lord, shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Now, through the rest of the text, we're going to learn quite a bit. He's going to answer that question, but not only the how long question, but a whole host of other questions that are related to it. You see, at this point, Habakkuk is kind of like looking at a tree, and that tree is immorality and injustice among God's people that's causing him and those around him suffering. But God's saying, I see the tree, I need to lift you up and look at the forest for a moment because there's a lot more going on. Your concern is localized, but what you're tapping into here is something universal. The relationship of suffering and evil 
in a world that was created and governed by God. But first, another question that's being answered here is one that's very basic and fundamental and one that we can't quickly walk past, which is this. Does God hear us in our suffering? In your suffering, do you sometimes feel like when you're mourning or you're lamenting, you're just doing it to the ceiling? Like prayers go up, nothing ever comes down. God feels like he's ghosting you. Well, does God answer our prayers? I picked those psalms intentionally because all of them have this two things in common. One, they ask the how long question. But two, we don't really know if God ever answered the prayers to those questions. So sometimes our prayers of mourning, lament, and how long, oh Lord, feel a bit unresolved. But what Habakkuk is teaching us implicitly because God responds, is that yes, God does hear. And he answers. Verse five, our first verse this morning. Look among the nations, God says in reply to Habakkuk. Habakkuk says, how long? Look at this injustice, look at the immorality. What's going on, God? How long are you going to allow this to happen? And God responds. He hears first, then he responds. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. I'm doing a work in your days that you wouldn't believe if told. That's where we get that phrase. You wouldn't believe me if I told you, right? That's, that's what God's telling him. Then we're going to read the rest of the response later, but I want to sit here on this point for a minute because this is really important what we're learning. God hears you in your suffering. God hears you in your suffering, in your prayers. God hears you. Even if you feel unseen by others, God sees you in your suffering. Even if you feel misunderstood by everybody, God understands you in your suffering. And even if you feel unheard by everyone, God hears you. So what this text is teaching us, the question is less, does God hear me in my suffering, than it is, will I hear God's response in my suffering? And not only that, but will I receive it? Like sometimes our suffering manifests in more of a complaint than anything, right? But if, you, if you're lifting up a genuine concern in your suffering, does God hear you? The answer is yes, but will you receive God's answer or reply to your prayer and suffering? That's going to be a hard thing for Habakkuk to do, as we're going to see this morning and then next Sunday. He asks, how long, O Lord, God responds, and Habakkuk takes the response and doesn't quite know what to do with it. You ever been there in your prayer life? God gives you a response, and you're like, not what I expected. Not sure what to do with this. Because in asking God how long, whether he knew it or not, Habakkuk was tapping into one of humanity's oldest questions. The question is, is he going to receive the answer from God? That old question is the problem of evil. Like I brought up before, I want to talk about it a little bit this morning because it kind of frames this prayer of Habakkuk in the whole book. 
That question of evil is one of the oldest questions humanity has ever asked. And it goes something like this. If God, who is omnipotent or all-powerful, if God is good, why is there suffering in the world? This is not a new question. I'm pretty sure this question has been asked since like the second or third generation, we'll say, after Eden, since the grandkids of Adam and Eve, who became adults, talked about the way that their uncle was murdered. Why did God allow that to happen? Why is there evil in the world if God is powerful and good? Ancient philosophers have said, you know what, there are four possible answers. If God says he desires to remove evil from the world, but evil persists, then God must be one of these four things. Thing number one, he's unwilling to remove evil from the world, and he's unable to remove evil from the world. Even if he wanted to, he couldn't. So God is actually neither good nor powerful. He's immoral and weak, and therefore undeserving of worship. This would be kind of like an atheistic response to that question. There's another option. Well, maybe it's that God is unwilling, but able. In other words, he can do something about evil in the world, but he doesn't want to. This is cruel and maliciously evil being. And I've frankly not really found it in philosophies that are taken seriously by people. There's a third option. Well, maybe it's that God is willing, but he's unable. So God is weak. He's really nice, but he can't really do anything about our suffering. I found this to be kind of like a de facto explanation among, especially among Christians or people who claim to be Christians that so value human free will and agency that they say all suffering in the world is a consequence of human action and God won't do anything about it because he doesn't want to violate our ability to choose between good and evil. He doesn't want to violate our agency. So God has essentially got his hands tied behind his back. He's super, super nice. He really wants to do something about it, but we keep making bad decisions and God doesn't want to interrupt our decision-making ability. That's not a good answer. God will interrupt our decision-making abilities. If he wants to, he's sovereign, right? But then finally, here comes the last option. Well, God is willing and is able to end suffering. And that is like, the Christian answer. But this opens a second box, a second set of questions in. Well, then why doesn't he end it? Why doesn't he end it? Habakkuk here is teaching us something very important when it comes to God's character and ability in, his, in, in our suffering. We're right to know that God is both willing and able to end suffering. But asking why doesn't he end it is actually asking the wrong question. So what is the right question to ask? And Habakkuk models it for us. What is the right question to ask? If God is willing and able to end suffering, but suffering persists, what is the appropriate prayer we're learning from Habakkuk to ask God? How long? How long? We know you're good. 
We know you want to end suffering. We know you are able. We know you can end suffering. So when will you end my suffering? How long? When will you end our suffering? How long, O Lord? When will you end universal suffering? How long, O Lord? Well, the gospel begins to answer that question for us. So we know the answer to this question in part. First, God is not watching us suffer from a distance. Through giving his son, Jesus Christ, he has suffered with us in sorrow and in loss and in betrayal and in death. If you've experienced any of those things, in a sense, so has God, because Jesus is truly God and truly man, and the experiences that he had on earth are experiences God had on earth. So when you weep at a funeral for a beloved husband or wife or child or grandparent or friend, and you wonder how long, O Lord, is death going to reign in this world, Jesus wept over his friend too. But God is not standing there thinking to himself, man, I wonder what it's like to suffer. He does. He understands. That is a very unique thing to the Christian faith, by the way. Second, through Jesus Christ, he has begun to end suffering. Like suffering does have an expiration date. Starting with death for those who believe and receive eternal life through faith. And third, God has promised to end universal suffering eternally in the end when his son comes the second time and finishes the work he began to make all things new. Suffering will go to hell. Like that's one of the beautiful promises that we see in Revelation. Suffering itself will suffer and every tear will be wiped from our eyes. God suffers with us. He has begun to end suffering, and he has promised that suffering will end. This is how the Christian faith begins to answer the question, well, if God is willing and able to end suffering, why doesn't he? Wrong question. How long will suffering continue? But in this answer, if we're honest, there's some unsettling bits. I mean, God suffers with us? Well, that's a Pandora's box of theological questions, isn't it? Death is how suffering is going to end? Wait, you're, to end suffering, there's going to be more suffering? Suffering must last a little bit longer? To this, the gospel answers, yes, yes, yes. So it shouldn't surprise us that when Habakkuk is receiving the answer to him in his time, there's some unsettling bits too that are going to shock him. God's answer to how long must this suffering go on, he receives this very unconventional, very unsettling response Look back at verse five and we'll add verse six. Here's God's response. How long, O Lord? God says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, here's the answer. How long, God? Well, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians, but God chooses to call them Chaldeans for a very specific purpose, which we'll get to. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth and seize dwellings not their own. In other words, God's answer to suffering is more suffering. 
Habakkuk says to God, we are suffering now. How long are we going to suffer? And God says, you're going to suffer more. And this suffering is not going to be more internal suffering, but it's going to be external suffering. He's raising up a brutal and chaotic and immoral society to judge and to purify and to sanctify his people. Well, just how brutal? God continues. Read with me verses 7 through 11. They, the Chaldeans, are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. In other words, this is an important part. We're going to come back to it next week. Their concepts of truth and ethics, of goodness and beauty, are not grounded in God or in some kind of objective standard. Their justice comes from themselves. Their sense of right and wrong is determined by them. Sound familiar? This is not a stale message, is it? Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Now he gets in a military description of what's going to happen. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press on proudly. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward is in no retreat. They're coming. This is happening. They gather captives like sand. Remember that description, sand? This is interesting. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. They pile up earth and take it. In other words, he's describing how people used to conquer. They would dump a bunch of dirt in front of a castle and then climb up the hill they made. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men, whose might is their God. KJV says, who worship power. Those things, internal sense of justice of what's right and wrong and the fact that these people worship power, we're going to talk a lot about that next week. I just want to highlight those two things here. The description, though, of the Chaldeans is terrifying. Bitter and hasty, violently seize land, take possession of territory, they gather captives like sand, they worship power. Habakkuk was just asking about, like, when's the suffering going to end in in Judea, and God is saying, no, it's going to be more suffering from this terrible nation. So you can imagine Habakkuk receiving this response, like, how terrible are they? How terrible are those others? So wait, God, why do we, God's righteous people, deserve to be judged, essentially, by them? That's what we're going to read next week. The answer to that question then is coming. But first, in a very subtle way, God is challenging Habakkuk's assumption that Judea, the Hebrews, are unfit candidates to be sanctified by God through them, through they, through the others. And this is where it becomes practical for us as believers. Because our assumption also must be challenged that we are this righteous people called the Christian church and are unfit candidates to be sanctified by God through them, through they, through the world, through the others. First, the Hebrews weren't that righteous. That's the obvious thing here. And it's something that Habakkuk admits. The law is paralyzed. The justice never goes forth. 
The wicked surround the righteous. The justice goes forth perverted. Like, who's he talking about? He's talking about his own people. He's talking about the Hebrews. So the first place we should ever look when complaining about sin is the mirror. And that only after self-reflection and repentance are we able to call other people to repentance. With the less log-eyed saints in the church, the better. Because that provides us with the opportunity to truly be salt and light in the world. But the second is this question I want to ask. What really is the difference between the Chaldeans and the Hebrews? What's the difference between the people that are coming from Chaldea and God's people? In fact, why did God choose Chaldea anyway? There's another regional military power at this time named Egypt, and they're a lot closer. God could have chosen to raise up Egypt, but he didn't. He chose specifically to raise up Chaldea because he wants to make a point to the Hebrews. Listen to the subtle comparison that's being made between the Hebrews and the Chaldeans. First, he's raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation. Question, from where did the Hebrews originally? originally? Like if Habakkuk got out his family tree and traced it all the way back to Abraham, from where was Abraham called out of? Ur of the Chaldeans. So God's saying, I raised up one nation out of Chaldea, yours, the Hebrews. I'm raising up another nation out of Chaldea. Then God talks at length about how the Chaldeans will violently take possession of this land around the Mediterranean. How did the Hebrews come to Israel, come to Judea? And interestingly, as an aside, God warns the Chaldeans that this army is going to come and gather captives like sand. Question, when God was assuring Abraham that he would have innumerable uh, descendants, he uses two analogies. He says, like the stars in the sky and what else? God says through Abraham, I'm going to make descendants like the sand of the sea. God says through the Chaldeans, I'm going to scoop them up. And finally, God describes the Chaldeans as people whose God is power. They worship power. But who are the Hebrews supposed to worship? Yahweh. They're supposed to worship God. Problem is, they start worshiping power. Okay, what's God doing here? What's his point? Isn't this fascinating? His point is this, to get Habakkuk, to get us to ask this question. What is the fundamental difference between the Chaldeans and the Hebrews? Is it their morality? No. Is it their place of origin? Nope. Fertile Crescent, same place. Is it their acquisition of this territory? Nope. Is it their worship? It's supposed to be. That's what's supposed to be different. That's the fundamental difference between the Chaldeans and the Hebrews. It's who they worship, or at least who they claim to worship. And the only way you get to worship Yahweh is through the gift of his grace. That is ultimately the difference between the Chaldeans and the Hebrews, God's grace alone. He chose to bring a nation out of Chaldea through Abram. He could have chosen Abram's neighbor. He could have chosen somebody from Egypt. He didn't. Grace alone. And this is a timeless and an extremely relevant observation for us. 
that the only difference between the Chaldeans and the Hebrews is God's grace. The only difference between God's people and people of the world, people of the light or people of darkness, sheep or goats, or whatever analogy you want to pick from Scripture, the only difference between those two is God's grace alone. So why would a good God judge his people through a sinful people like Chaldea? That's what Habakkuk's going to ask, but it's the wrong question to ask first. The right question is, why would God choose to love a sinful people like the Hebrews? That's the self-reflecting question. And that is one that we, as believers, ought to continually be returning to over and over again. Last week, we were challenged to think in these terms that God can and does use Chaldean culture to sanctify his people, those things in our culture that might frighten us or infuriate us or frustrate us. Are there things in our culture that do that to you? If not, just hop on social media 30 seconds, and come back. You'll find one. Are there things in this culture that frighten you, that infuriate you, that frustrate you? Yes. Do you suppose God can use those things to make his people brave? to make his people peaceful, to make his people more aligned to his affections and desires and love? Yes. Now this week, I wanna add to that, to challenge us to think in these terms. Well then what's the difference between the saints and those in the world, between believers and unbelievers, Christians and non-Christians, those who pursue God's holiness and those who don't? Was it because God saw something special in you? Or that Jesus was like, you know what, this one, this one's got disciple-making all over him, right? The Holy Spirit thought you could pursue holiness, just wind you up and you, no, none of that. The only thing that differentiates sinners from saints is God's grace, period, period. And that's the only thing we should want for the world. It's the only thing we should want for those people or tribes or systems or organizations or whatever that frighten us or frustrate us or infuriate us, we should want for them the exact same grace that was shown to us. But for the grace of God, there go I. Familiar with that saying? That is not a statement of judgment, but one of remembering. Not a statement that should be said in pride, but in humility. Because the Bible itself is filled with what I call once were statements. Statements about our identity or who we once were. And passages like this allow us to take a moment to remember who we once were. God's doing that with Habakkuk. The Hebrews, you come from Chaldea too. Who were we once? We once were, Paul says, slaves of sin. We once were living in the passions of our flesh by nature, children of wrath. We once were far off from Christ. We once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. We once were people who walked in sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Peter summarizes it this way. Once you were not a people, once you had not received mercy, you had not received grace. So Habakkuk is a reminder. So Habakkuk, it's reminding him where the Hebrews came from originally, who they're supposed to be against who they presently were. 
God called them out of Chaldea to be his people by grace alone, a holy nation, but they were looking more like where they came from than where God was calling them to. And so I think it's a moment for us to reflect that the once words are not for us, still ours, where they shouldn't be. Like, are we still slaves to sin? If you place your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, the Holy Spirit regenerates your heart, gives you new desires. You have been made right, declared righteous before God. Are you still slaves of sin? Are we still living in the passions of our flesh? Are we still, by nature, children of wrath, far off, alienated, and hostile to God in our mind doing evil deeds? Are we still people that walk in sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness? We shouldn't be. Because if so, what right did the Hebrews have to complain to God about the Chaldeans, and what right do we have to complain about God, to complain to God about our culture? The answer for both of us is none. And that sinking, humbling feeling, in one sense, is precisely what God is trying to get at. He's asking us, the saints of his church, recipients of the blessing of his son's death and resurrection, have you presumed on the riches of my kindness and forbearance and patience, forgetting that my kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Habakkuk here is creating a space that is sacred, and that is a space for repentance. How? By remembering the once words in contrast to the are nows. Because for every once were statement, the Bible has a bigger, beautiful, broader are now statement. We were once slaves of sin, Paul says, but are now set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness. We once were living in the passions of our flesh, but are now made alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We once were by nature children of wrath, but are now saved by grace through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it's a gift of God. We once were far off, but are now reconciled in his body, being Christ, by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We once were people who walked in sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry, but are now God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearted, kind, humble, meek, and patient. Peter says it this way, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Church, let's be the people we're supposed to be. Bringing to God, not complaints of suffering in the world, but a longing for suffering to end, and a memory the fact that if we're honest with ourselves, we cause suffering to through our sin. But that God's grace alone, through his affection for his people, has redeemed us, has begun to end suffering, 
and has promised that it will end. We should be a people of God's mercy, those who receive it and those who live a life of mercy in the world. Amen? Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you so much for your inspired word. We thank you that in our suffering, whether it's sin from ourselves or with others or from others or in the world, we, we thank you that in suffering, you hear us, you hear our prayer. Father, we confess to you that at times we cause suffering. And Father, we lament that at other times we are victims of suffering. Help us, Holy Spirit, to discern, as God did to Habakkuk, our sources of suffering. Help us to trust that you are good and able and willing to end suffering. And Father, we thank you for this sacred space that's being created in this book of self-reflection to remember that it is only by your grace alone that we are called your people. Father, let us not be who we once were. Let us be who you are calling us to be now. Disciples of your son, walking in step with your Holy Spirit. Lord, we love you, and it's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen.